You are listening to The Gateway Church, located in Ferrisburg, Michigan. You can learn more about us by visiting thegateway.church or like and follow us on Facebook, where you can watch full services, keep up with all that is going on, and get connected. Well, first of all, I know there's a couple things you're thinking. The first one is, uh, Bobby, can you tell your shirt to stop yelling at me? Sorry, sorry. I, 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 I tried. It just, it, it's just too loud. It's too loud. Um, and then the other one is that, hey, you're not Pastor Ben. You're Pastor Bobby. Uh, Pastor Ben, you know, shared this awesome testimony with us that he's actually right now in California, Carlsbad with uh, Logan and Eli, and they're going to be making the trip across the U.S. from the West Coast to the Best Coast, uh, the West Coast of West Michigan. Uh, so be praying for them this week as they are making the trick back. And so you guys are stuck with me this morning. And uh, if you don't know me, I am Pastor Bobby. Uh, I oversee uh, worship and adult discipleship. And uh, But man, you guys didn't miss out on anything with me not singing this morning, amen? The team crushed it. They did great. Uh, they are all tired out of their minds. A lot of them got back on Saturday and literally got back from like a week-long uh, convention in Ohio to going to work. They got back and they went to work. And uh, even my wife said this morning, she's like, they were up at midnight texting each other. Um, they, those kids never quit. And so they are off getting some rest and we are so thankful for them. Um, and you might have looked at them leading worship and you're like, wow, they're so gifted, or wow, Bobby, I can't believe the amount of time and effort you poured into them. And really, let me just say off the bat, I've done very little with the worship team that you've seen up here. A lot of the work ministry uh, has been through the work of Pastor Sean and also through my wife, Kyle. Uh, she's been volunteering her time, coaching these students, and I, uh, I'm just so blessed uh, to be married to such an awesome wife who was able uh, to take so much time and to work alongside uh, Pastor Sean, who cares about your kids, your students, um, and just developing them. So I uh, just want to say that. Thank you, man. Uh, Kyle's counting uh, right now, and so thank her as well if you see her. Um, and so, yeah. But anyway, let's take a second and uh, dive into today's message. Amen? All right, let's do it. So during the summer, uh, if you've been here the past few weeks, we have been going through a series called Exiles uh, through First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude. And today we are finishing the first third. So we're only a third way done, even though it feels like the summer's almost ending. The series is only a third of the way done. And we're wrapping up First Peter uh, by looking at First Peter chapter 5 today. And Pastor Rocky, if you were here last week, he did a great job summarizing the whole letter of First Peter. So I won't take too much time focusing on all of that. Um, but I also had the privilege, if you were here several weeks ago, of sharing out of First Peter chapter 2. Uh, so chapter 2, it's actually where we get the title of this summer series, uh, that early believers were to see themselves as exiles and sojourners, because like Rocky said, the Christians experienced a paradigm shift. They were no longer citizens of the world, but they are now citizens of heaven, serving under the lordship and the reign of King Jesus, and they're now living as exiles in a broken and a hostile and even a sometimes sinister world. When the rest of the Roman world was bowing to Caesar, the early church was instead bowing to Christ. And as citizens of heaven still living in brokenness today, we may face persecution or hardship whenever our values clash with those of the culture around us, just like the first century. So I think Pastor Ben, in deciding uh, to preach through this series, uh, he did it at the absolute perfect time. And, and hopefully you're 
thinking that and seeing that as well. But much of 1 Peter discusses how the church should respond to hostility and persecution, which is important and should influence the way we read the entire letter from start to finish. So this letter, think of it of an encouragement and instruction in the midst of suffering. It's a letter about living in peace and harmony with our enemies, It's a letter about being a good example to those who don't follow Jesus by taking a posture of humility and submission and service, even when, you know, we don't always feel like it, right? I know I feel like that sometimes. But when we think about it, much of 1 Peter is about outside and external struggles we're facing as believers. And I talked about that a few weeks ago, that this is how we as Christians handle attacks from those who are outside of the faith. Now, this is how we as Christians should respond when we have unbelievers in the government or in our workplace or in our marriage or in the home. There's an interesting, um, there's this understanding, I guess, especially in chapter 2 of who we are as believers. But it's set as a reminder that we're holy, that we're separate, that we're set apart. We are meant to stand out as a church, and it gives us perspective as we enter And as we go into a hostile world, but maybe it should also force us to ask how we're meant to stand out from those around us. And if we're standing out for the right or or maybe the wrong reasons. Now, this makes chapter 5 extremely significant because Peter shifts the focus from talking about the relationship that Christians have with those outside the church to discussing the relationship that Christians have with one another inside the church. So I almost think of this section in chapter 5 as house rules for the early church. So let's say that together, that these are house rules. All right, let's try it one more time. I know I kind of threw you off, that these are house rules. Yeah, there you go. For us as a community of people called the church and the family of God. So in chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says that you yourselves like living stones are being built up as what? A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is using a lot of metaphors, linking the early Christians with the Jewish people, and he is now calling them a new sort of family, that they are a spiritual household made up of priests and priestesses. It also might make sense why we see a lot in Scripture uh, people being called like brother and sister, uh, which now to us kind of feels a little weird, right? Uh, But Peter continues this idea in 1 Peter 4.17 when he says that it is time for a king's verdict. It's time for a judgment to begin. Where? At the household of God. And if it begins with this household, with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, this is Peter's statement right before he dives into his final commands in 1 Peter 5. He's saying that we as Christians are a new sort of family. That we are family, right? You're like, I understand now why the youth led us in worship. Yes, yes. And because we are a new household, because we are a new family, built on the firm foundation of Christ's lordship. We sang that today that there are now expectations for us to follow. 
And, and when I think about house rules, uh, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I think of those fun little signs that you get at Hobby Lobby or Home Goods or Etsy that you hang in your house. And, and maybe even you have one of those. And if so, hey, no judgment here. Um, I'm not, no, no judgment, I promise. I, I actually uh, went digging and tried to find some examples online. And while they aren't quite as hilarious as some of the memes that Pastor Jamie uh, showed a couple weeks ago, I think they are still pretty informative. Because what I found when studying this very, very important topic of family rules, though, let me just say I'm not any family sign aficionado, is that there are two basic approaches in these house rule signs that people hang in their homes, that they are either functional or they are formative. And so let's, I I found some examples, so let me show you. These are the functional house rules uh, that we have here. Uh, If you open it, close it. If you turn it on, turn it off. If you drop it, pick it up, right? Functional, like, hey, if the house is to function properly, you got to turn off the lights. You don't touch the thermostat, right? Right? You guys get it. So those are the functional house rules, Uh, and maybe you relate to that. Let's look at the formative house rules. And I don't know why, whenever I read this, and, and, I, and I did it with someone earlier, not during the sermon, but I read it with a southern accent, I just assume that this is hung in like every southern home in America. And if, again, if you're southern, hey, no judgment here, I just, in my head, that's how I associate it. Like, in this house, we do real. We do mistakes. We do I'm sorry's. Right? Like, maybe, okay, maybe it's just me. But we do fun. And like, look how many different fonts they went through. Man. That is formative. So function like, hey, don't touch the thermostat. Formative like, hey, this is why we do the functional thing. So, um, but these are very different methods, but they, they ultimately accomplish the same goal, right? But who here thinks, let's go back to the functional house rules for a second. Who here thinks uh, that they relate more with the functional house rules? Like, hey, like, don't touch the thermostat, right? Got any, any rule keepers here? Yeah, rule followers, you're like, hey, A, B, C, you do that, we're fine. All right, formative house rule people, let's look at them. Who here is more like a little loosey-goosey? Who's our, who's our type B personality? You're like, hey, we do giggles here, right? Right? You're like, Bobby, that's not you. No, no, it's not me. Um, <laughs> who here thinks maybe they're a little bit of both, right? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit? Uh, okay. But these are, um, yeah. But what I love about this idea of house rules is that it changes the whole idea of rules in the family of God. And and one pastor uh, that I was studying this week explains that there are two different ways that we can interpret and understand rules in American society today. The first way is the club model for rules. And I think this is the way that many people view Christianity. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christ follower, and and someone asks you to describe Christianity, they're just like, oh, it's a bunch of rules, right? In this model uh, of club, you must follow the rules in order to belong. If you break a rule, you're out of the club. So rules, therefore, define the relationship. So if you break the rules, you're no longer a member of the club, whether uh, that's a country club or the He-Man Woman Haters Club or a health club or any other club. If you break the rules, you're done. Uh, Then there's the family model for following rules, which is the complete opposite way from the club model and the way that we should function with rules. In the family model, the relationship is what defines 
the rules. If you don't enforce your house rules on, let's say, your neighbor's kids, like you don't spank a stranger's child, right? Or at least I would hope not. But this is the idea of the family model. Because we have a relationship, because we are a family, there are certain expectations that we have. The relationship is what defines and decides the rules. And I'm sure some of the Gateway students here, uh, the Gateway youth here, can think of weird rules that your family has, or maybe some of you who are a little older when you were a kid, think of the rules that you had, or maybe some of the rules that you impose today, whether it's curfew times, or, or how you address elders, or your weekly chores around the house, or, or even when you do your homework. But you don't do these things in order to be part of your family. You do them because you're part of your family. So before I move forward into 1 Peter 5, I wanted all of us to understand the context and the gravity of what was about to follow, that Peter gives a list of commands, but they're house rules for the early church at the end of his letter. And we need to remember that these commands are in the context of both the persecution that the church was facing, and they were in light of this new family that has been created through Jesus. So with that, we're going to jump into 1 Peter 5. And it says, starting in verse 1, he says, So, because you are a family, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, who's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, he's now talking to both the elders and those younger now, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would take your word today and use it to speak to us, challenge us, inspire us, however you need to today. We yield ourselves to hear from you through your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing Peter does is address the hierarchy in this new family by talking to those who are more and less mature in the faith. And the startling thing here is that those reading would assume that when Peter mentions the household of God in chapter 4, verse 17, that he would go into the typical family code, which is similar to those of his day, like the Greek philosopher Aristotle, maybe you've heard of him, and that he would discuss the roles of husbands and wives, or fathers and children, or masters and slaves, like we see the Apostle Paul do in his letters. But Peter did something already unthinkable at this point, that he addressed two of these cultural household hierarchies earlier in his letter, that when talking about being a good witness to unbelievers and existing as exiles in this world, Peter says that we should take the role of servants when dealing with ungodly governments and spouses and masters. And this is hard for us to understand, I think, because... Um, especially husbands and wives, I think, because we need to think of this in light of Peter's day 
and Peter's audience. So think of that for a second. That Peter is addressing a church that is living in a culture that is far more oppressive and far more patriarchal than the world that we live in today. So just the idea of Peter addressing women directly or speaking to them and not about them. He's speaking directly to them as equals. And that he's asking them to submit themselves and not directing the husbands to force their wives into submission is already incredibly liberating compared to the culture of the time and the people who also wrote household codes. So when we live in a world today, last back to the 21st century, and we live in a culture that's less patriarchal and less oppressive than the first century, we need to figure out how to contextualize Peter's statement to make sense of it for today. So the first thing that we need to see is that Peter places his command to wives and husbands, not in the household code in chapter 5, but in the middle of an encouragement to people facing oppression and persecution from non-believers. So he is addressing how to be a Christian citizen in an ungodly world and how to be a Christian spouse in an ungodly home and how to be a Christian employee in an ungodly workplace. The even more startling thing is that when Peter does finally talk about household rules, he doesn't talk about spouses or masters or slaves But Peter flips even the idea of parents and children by making a statement to elders and those who are young in their faith. That Peter gives these leaders and followers of the church several different commands and responsibilities in this new family, but all of them are centered around one larger concept of humility. So the first rule, the first house rule that we need to follow in the kingdom of God is that we need to be humble toward one another. So no matter where you are in your faith, you need to be humble. Regardless of whether you're leading or following, you need to be humble. And this, it makes humility kind of a unifying ethic, how we think of love. And it's also not this general idea of humility, but it is about having humility within the larger context of a community. So this means that those who are older or or more mature in their faith should have patience with those who are struggling, either with how maybe they're understanding the faith or or even how they're living it out. Because if if you're honest, and, and let me be honest, it's sometimes easy when you've been a Christian for a long time to forget what it was like to not know Christ or or to be new to the faith. Or maybe even if you grew up in the church, you have little or no understanding at all what life without Jesus is like. So Peter encourages elders not not to be leaders, but to rather think of themselves as shepherds of those younger in the faith, as though they're almost like helpless sheep that don't understand what they're doing. And all the sheep go, and all the shepherds probably went, humbug, right? This is a distinction that we need to be aware of, too, because there's recently been a lot of scandals that have taken place in churches across America. The many have actually said, and I was just at a conference this week, and they were talking about a leadership crisis that we've been facing in the church, whether it's due to verbal abuse and manipulation or sexual misconduct or embezzlement. So there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of weight. It's a weighted statement when we talk about leadership in the church. So one thing to recognize is that Peter is addressing a community of followers and leaders. It's plural. It's not a singular leader or, or pastor or apostle. He's talking about many elders who are mature in the faith and leading the church together, whether voluntarily 
or vocationally. And he includes himself even as a fellow elder who's leading together with them. And with that, I'm thankful that we have a group of people that help lead this church and that we have many different voices that get to preach and lead in various different ways. And if you've been here the past several weeks, you've heard from different people who have shared this pulpit, that we have both men and women who together share the stage, who lead worship, who serve on our deacon and our elder board, because this seems to follow in line with what Peter's sentiment here is in chapter 5. I also think it's interesting that Peter and many of the other New Testament authors, they shy away from the word leadership. They don't use it very often in their letters. And it's that Paul uses the word shepherd to convey the idea of leadership. But this small change, this small change, this tiny change in vocabulary, it changes the whole idea of leadership and authority in the church. Because think about it for a second. The success of a leader is based on their own leadership abilities, their own personal skills, their own vocational and educational development. But the success of a shepherd is based solely on the health and the well-being of the sheep. Because where a leader is over an institution, a shepherd cares for a flock. And Peter also doesn't give those more mature in the faith any sort of official title. They, they are merely told to shepherd others. They aren't called shepherds themselves. They're actually not even called elders like we understand the role of church elders today. They're simply called old. No offense. Maybe you like the, other, the, the synonym better. They're simply called mature. Uh, so where a leader might have the title of CEO, the shepherd is merely called something like Phil or Ted or, I don't know, Bob. Bob, which, let's be honest, is a pretty unfortunate name for anyone who's called Bob. There's a Bob I know, yours truly. And I, let me say, I go by every derivative of Robert that exists. Uh, shish kebab, babalaba ding dong, bob beck, bobcat. Uh, you name it, I've been called it. Uh, but there are only a couple people out there who actually call me Bob and not Bobby or Pastor Bobby. And that's actually Kyle, my wife, and my papa. But honestly, I'm starting to think that my papa only calls me Bob because his name is also Bob. Um, but Bob, it's not only a nickname for me, but it's a name given to me by people I love. And the same can be said for another term. That term is pastor. That I was fortunate to have a mentor of mine tell me a long time ago that his favorite titles are grandpa, dad, husband, and pastor. A pastor for him, it wasn't official, uh, an official title that he used to get respect, to garner respect from people, but it was a name given to him by those who love him, by those who trust him, like those who are part of his family. And just how there are people who call me Bob, I'm thankful for those who call me Pastor Bobby. I know you do so because you love me, because you trust me, and, and maybe my position of spiritual insight or authority that there are some who call me pastor that confide your deepest, darkest secrets or share some of your hardest 
struggles or even include me in your biggest celebrations. I'm thankful to be called Bob by some or husband by Kyle or, or brother by Jen and Rachel or friend by many others. But I'm also thankful to those of you who see me as your pastor and as an elder in the faith. And this relational idea of being a pastor and shepherd, it actually led me here to the Gateway Church and working with my pastor and my boss, uh, Pastor Ben. Now, while I was interviewing at the church, I saw Pastor Ben engaging with his neighbors, knowing them by name, knowing their kids, knowing what they were going through. I saw him talking about the missionaries the church supported and caring not just about where they're going and what they're doing, but caring about them and caring about their families. And, and I even saw the whole church congregation at this time coming together and planning an outreach for the community all in one weekend of interviewing at this church. And within two weeks of being hired and working here, I already had more personal meetings with Pastor Ben than I had with the pastor at the last church I worked at. I'm thankful we have a pastor that still greets people as they leave, that sees himself as a shepherd first, and that he is a lead pastor that cares not only for our church members, but for the staff and for the board and for our families as well. But not only are those who are older in the faith encouraged to lead well, but this also means that those who are younger in the faith should lean on their elders' maturity, knowledge, and experience. Now, Peter drives the point home here that those who are younger um, should, should submit by using the same word that he uses for wives earlier in the letter, that he's saying all Christians should be submissive to those who are more mature and knowledgeable and experienced in the faith, just as they see many wives doing in this patriarchal and oppressive culture that they live in. But for elders to patiently shepherd young sheep and for young sheep to take the role of a submissive, uh, submissive servant, it takes one common theme, humility. That is why Peter tells all of them to be humble. And, and not only that, he tells them to, to wear their humility on them, like it's part of their everyday attire. That humility should be a defining characteristic of who they are. That people should just see and know that they are humble people. That's something they need to consciously put on continually every day like we do our jeans or our socks or our sneakers. Peter says that we are to be clothed in humility. Because how can the church be at peace with those around them if they aren't at peace themselves? How can they be citizens of a new family and that family be in disarray. So Peter's first command to this church, to this family, is to be humble. But Peter's next house rule for the family of God is for them to be watchful. First Peter, he continues in 1 Peter 5, in verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. So just as there are a few commands to those more and less mature in the faith, and they all center around this idea of humility, there are now several different commands that are centered around how we respond to Satan's attacks including being watchful, sober-minded, and having resistance. 
And resisting the devil and being watchful to his attacks, they're pretty easy to understand conceptually. Like I could tell you, resist the devil or, or be watchful. And you're like, okay, I kind of get what you're saying. But I think um, one of the most important, uh, important commands that Peter gives the church here is to do it with a sober mind. And no, I would just want you to know off the bat, this is confusing because it's not about drinking. It's not about alcohol. So what is he actually trying to say when he says, have a sober mind? What does it mean to have a sober mind? Because this can be confusing in the context of Peter's other commands. So we need to look at a couple of other places in Scripture where the word is used in the Greek, and we can see that being sober-minded, it means being well-balanced, being self-controlled, and how Paul says it in 2 Timothy, he says, knowing how to keep your head in any situation. So one way to not give in to Satan's attacks is by not flying off the handle or not being radicalized in our thinking or not giving in to Satan's attacks. But again, what does that mean in light of the rest of Peter's letter to this family of exiles? What are Satan's attacks that Peter is referring to? So we need to think that Peter is writing a church that is facing persecution from those outside of their faith. But when Peter talks about getting attacked, he doesn't actually mention those who are persecuting them. Have you thought about that? Isn't that weird? When Peter is writing the church that is facing persecution from those outside of the faith, he doesn't mention those who are persecuting them. He mentions Satan. Because Peter is reminding the church who the real enemy is when they are facing opposition and persecution. Peter's statement about Satan being our enemy in light of the rest of his letter about persecution is a statement about those who are persecuting us. That because Satan is the enemy, those who are persecuting us are not. So when Peter says from the start here that we need to not fly off the handle, that we need to be sober-minded and keep our heads in every situation, he is telling us to remember who the real enemy is. See, the enemy, it's not a company that's trying to neutralize the bathrooms. The enemy, it's not a political opponent who's trying to legalize abortion or, or legalize immigration. The enemy isn't a child who's fighting for the environment or a young college athlete. The enemy aren't those who identify as Democrats or Republicans or QAnon. The enemy is the devil. This changes the nature of those who attack us and persecute us. From being, being villains to being victims. They're merely being used as tools of evil. And Peter is reminding us not to become tools of evil ourselves in how we respond to those who hurt us and persecute us. So we need to keep our heads about us and be watchful in how we respond to persecution. When we respond to those who are unkind by being unkind, or, or when we villainize those who villainize us, or when we fight fire with fire, and when we spread misinformation without properly checking facts, or when we give in to conspiracy theories, when we belittle people or call them names, we have become tools of evil ourselves. So we, even faithful Christians, even the most devout 
have to be careful not to become victims of Satan ourselves by villainizing our enemies. This is the second part of Peter's house rules to the family of God, to the household of priests and priestesses, that we need to be humble towards one another and be watchful of the devil's schemes. But Peter, he wraps up this letter at the end. He says that the God of all grace, who is called who? Who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So think of that for a second. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, this is for you. Come on, this is for you. So the God of all grace, who's called who? Turn to the person next to you. Who's called you? To the eternal glory in Christ. Will himself, he'll restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, the true king, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter doesn't just give house rules to the early church. He follows them with a promise. Just as we used to do our chores growing up and we would get an allowance from our parents, Peter is saying that if we remain united, if we resist the devil, if we stay humble, if we persevere through our persecution, we will have a reward. That this is Peter's benediction prayer. But instead of putting it as a hope, he makes it a promise. Instead of saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may he shine his face upon you and be gracious to you, he declares it. He says, God will, not may, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Earlier in chapter 5, Peter said that God will exalt those who are humble, and he is again declaring it at the end of his letter, and here he is describing what that future exaltation will look like, that this is our hope in the midst of suffering, that Jesus is the true king and not Caesar or Rome or the UN or the USA or the president, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is the king, that he is Lord. And we as his followers get to reign with him. That we as his followers are granted eternal life. So this gives us hope in the midst of suffering. It gives us hope in the midst of persecution or hardship. That Jesus is in control. That he will see us through this. That we serve a God who not only was persecuted and suffered and died on a cross himself, that we serve a God who not only said, forgive them for they know not what they do, but that we serve a God who resurrected from the grave, who defeated death, hell, and the grave, and in him we have that promise of victory as well, that we serve a God who gets the last laugh. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are our king. And we are your servants, Lord. And where the rest of this world is enslaved to the prince of darkness, Lord, we thank you that we get to willingly serve you as our king. Lord, and we thank you that you are unlike any other king of this world. 
where the king of this world brings peace through bloodshed, you bring peace through shedding your own blood, Lord. So help us to be people who can take up our cross and follow you as well. Lord, and I pray as your new family, built on the firm foundation of your lordship and your kingship, you will help us to learn to be humble, to set our pride aside, Lord, to set our differences aside and be united in your lordship and your reign. Lord, and I thank you, Lord, that there are so many people here with different gifts, Lord, and I thank you that our youth got to show some of the gifts that they have, Lord, but I pray, Lord, that we would value everyone in the gifts that they have to bring to our church, the place where they are in their walk, Lord, and help us to walk humbly with them, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be watchful as well, Lord, that we understand that the prince of darkness, Lord, is so cunning, Lord. Help us to not justify the means by the end, Lord, but to stay faithful to you through everything. How we win is just as important as winning. And you already defeated death, hell, and the grave. And so we lean on you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, I pray that you would shape us, that you would mold us, that you would speak to us today as we leave this place as your king ambassadors to a lost, hurting, and broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we end service today, I want to do one thing, and I want our benediction to be Peter's benediction as well. So will you stand with me this morning? And together, I want us to read this out loud, our benediction prayer. So let's read this together. The God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen and amen. Go in the grace of God today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegateway.church.